What's happening, everybody? My name is Clay with FTM Alerts. Welcome to Phantom Unchained, episode 44. With me, as always, uh, $24, still got you cast. Justin Beavis, he'll be back in a second. And Mr. Nick Dracon, welcome back from your worldly travels, my friend. How are you guys? Hey, Clay. Doing, doing great. Good to hear. 24, how are you doing, buddy? Good, good. I'm just reading the comments. Uh, someone just said first bullish day in weeks. I don't know, man. I don't really feel that, but um, sure, I, sure. I mean, <laughs> I, I did uh, I did feel something today when I saw a 4% spike in Bitcoin like an hour ago with, with a nice uh, nice green dildo candle printed. Uh, and I saw a bunch of alts go up like 10%. So probably the first... Uh, the first happy moment of, of Bitcoin that we've had in uh, in a couple of weeks, but to your point, twenty four. I'm not sure how much it truly means uh, in in the big picture, but you like to see it. You like to see it. I think there's a lot of was, FOMO, people trying to buy the bottom. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if, if we actually we found the bottom, um, or if we have some more down, downside to go, but. Uh, I don't know if you guys uh, saw this put out earlier, but if you're if you're watching today, um, there was this awesome Phantom Unchained bingo board that was put out. Uh, <laughs> shout out to Neon Piscos who uh, who released this thing. You can go ahead and, and check off which Celsius I have. It's a it's a Fuji Apple Pear sparkling Celsius. So uh, if you're if you're following along, it's actually a pretty hilarious game to play. No cereal today, but we already hit on probably the cast update too early. So, you know, somebody almost got big. How is the cast? Good. All right, man. 12 more days, man. And uh, get this freaking thing. It's been on me for two months. Look how dirty it is. I've been playing basketball with it. I just don't care. Nice. Are you? Oh, you got your right hand. Okay. Dude, you could probably, like, really do some damage with that. You can, like, block people out and... Oh yeah, yeah. I would use it just like to protect myself with the ball, and they just run yeah. at it. All right, and they're probably like, if if it's like a sensitive defender, probably they'll like not want to touch it just to be nice. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes if they do, I'll fake. I'm like, oh, bro, damn! <laughs> oh, quickly out. Sorry. <laughs> Amazing. Davis, you feeling better, buddy? You got that blanket on your shoulders. Oh yeah, I'm feeling better. It's I'm just cold. Gotcha. Yeah. Well. We I'm are still down. also pallid, but I think that's just my normal look. <laughs> so we're down double sharp today, my friends. Uh, he is actually out with COVID, so this is uh, this is like COVID unchained as of late. But uh, feel better, double sharp. So uh, cool, guys. Well, we got a ton of stuff to get to. Uh, pretty loaded show today. So uh, first thing I, we want to hop into. So. Uh, I read an article that came out, was actually released by Bank of America Corporate. It was an interesting um, kind of study, you know, sort of anonymized as, as to how people are spending their funds and particularly what they're doing with, with crypto investment. Uh, and the study found that, that crypto users are, you know, the transfer of user funds to any crypto platform, uh, decentralized exchange or otherwise, uh, is down 50%. Um, so kind of curious, do you guys, you know, is, is this in line with the expectation? Would you expect it to be, uh, more or less? Um, you know, what, what do you think about that? I, I would that say it's pretty, pretty what 
like we all thought, just because most people are into Bitcoin and Ethereum, they're not as far down as some alts. I find it interesting. I don't really look at the crypto users down metric. I like to look at the the number of wallets that are down um, because that number is still significantly higher than the, the number of users, right? Because we've got some older players as well. Um, it's It's interesting. A lot of people have been kind of cashing out. You know, just how it is. It feels good to have real money in the bank, but um, I'm not surprised by this. Um, and I'll keep seeing these sort of metrics as people try to find the bottom. I'm not sure where that's coming, but I'm sure Beavis and Nick, you probably got a little bit more of a, a feel for what's going on. I I have no predictions. I'm just waiting. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a good position to have. Uh Justin, I, don't, I, don't, I think predicting anything in this market is extremely difficult. Um, I mean, it, it, all the data is at extremes when you're talking about macro data, which I follow very closely. And when things are at extremes, all-time highs, all-time all lows, and, and everything is out of whack, it breaks everyone's models. And when it breaks everyone's models, you get a lot of conflicting ideas that, that get put out and, and everyone listens to these ideas and that's how they form their ideas. So you've got, you know, kind of um, uh, models that aren't spitting out anything useful and that's been put out into the public. And the public's using that incorrect info to form their own incorrect views. So everything is very, very uncertain. As it relates to, you know, users being down 50%, yeah, sure, I mean, directionally that seems right. Quantifying it, I think, is a futile exercise. Um and to 24's point, yeah, some people have had enough. They're exhausted. Um, they've cashed out. And some people have just gone broke. Um, so when you combine those two things, um, in addition with anyone who isn't broke and who isn't exhausted, now has a lot more options to deploy their capital, um, you know, you end up with usage falling off a cliff. So, yeah, that, that's, not, that's not very surprising. How long it lasts is the interesting question. And what needs to happen for that trend to, to reverse itself is also an interesting question. I think there's a lot of stuff that needs to be worked out before um, I at least can have any coherent argument as to where a bottom is and then what happens next. Um, I, I just don't see everything being flushed out as yet. I think there's a lot more to come, whether it's, you know, bankruptcies, whether it's macro data that's poor, it's just a lot. This is, you know, this is going to go on for a really long time. And I think we made that point maybe four or five weeks ago um, on the show, and and nothing's really moved price-wise since then, right? Because yeah. no one knows, you know, what happens next, and as a result, big money doesn't make doesn't make a move. So nothing's really changed. Uh, bad news keeps flowing out. You get some good news flowing in, um, and it's just going to take months. Like, don't be in a hurry to buy anything. No one's in a hurry to buy anything right now. Liquidity is at a premium and you'll get plenty of time to buy something. Who cares if you miss 20K and you buy at 22? Like, yep. you know, yeah. So I don't, really, I don't really buy into the, you know, the, the, the notion that you need to have FOMO and you need to buy the bottom. Like if you're right and Bitcoin is going to be a thing, then who cares where you buy in between 20 and 30K if it's going back to 60 um, but what really matters is if you buy in at 20, 22, 25K and then it nukes again down to 15, you're, so 
just calm down. Like there's going to be a, the good news is that with every day that passes, we get more information and we can make better decisions. Um, so it's, it's certainly going to be interesting, but yeah, users are down. Of course, users yeah. are down in everything, whether it's, you know, Robinhood usage or DeFi usage or Uniswap usage, everything's down. Magic the gathering usage. <laughs> it's probably going up. Oh, it's going down, dude. They're they're done. I think they just are doing a bad job of making their game right now. But yeah, it's like uh, everything just sucks right now. What are people doing? I don't even know what the hell people are doing with their time playing like Fortnite. Making threads. I yeah. saw we learning. <laughs> yeah, speaking of games, I saw like a bunch of like news where like a lot of these AAA game studios are kind of cutting down for the recession. Like shit's hit, it's hitting everyone, you know. Yeah. It's best to kind of just do your thing, you know. You know, buy junk that you wanted to buy for a while, you know. Don't keep looking at the crypto coins because you'll get you'll wake up one day looking at one of these charts, you'll see a green candle, you catch yourself FOMO, and then boom, as usual, it's a, a fake pump and you're screwed. And you know, just hold on to the strategy you have of just waiting for the real opportunity. And like these guys have said, there'll be a confirmation where it's a little bit risky to get in, but I'm sorry, before the confirmation, it'll be a little bit risky to get in. But once we're past, I don't know, certain levels, let's say we hit back up to 30K on BTC or something, some sort of level that that's been a, a heavy resistance, something to kind of just sit back up on, then buy in, you know, but for now, I don't know, buy yourself some anime swords, you know, enjoy your life. <laughs> the problem with like noodling into the, crypto market when there's not like a lot of certainty and a lot of momentum is like you know equities things like that like there are infinite people to bid every you know jump down uh and it's supported by regulation it's supported by a massive multiple massive economies and it's supported by you know a, a type of demand and a type of political and economic and cultural support that crypto does not have yet. So when you're talking about like downside risks, like the reason that I do not give a shit if I don't buy the bottom or whatever the hell is like the longer we crab at these really low levels, the more vulnerable we are because, you know, proponents of the industry are less capitalized um, users are fatigued. Uh, there's a lot more scrutiny from regulatory bodies. Um, and it's like, there's just a chance. There's always a chance of some extreme action happening that devalues crypto another 50 to 90%. Um, and that like, you know, the longer you expose yourself to like this crabbing, um, especially since it's low volume crabbing, there's not like a ton of volatility to farm. There's not really much reason to do jack shit. Um, the, the more you potentially expose yourself to like an extreme, um, downside occurrence. And, and right now, like, I don't see anything good happening anytime soon. Um, like Justin's what right. could possibly happen? Like, I don't yeah. like, you know, just, the Pope, a, the Pope makes Bitcoin, the official Christian currency. <laughs> that would maybe be like, that would save us maybe. The, 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 the reason Justin's right is when you look at asset classes, um, they all have an inherent value. 
a piece of real estate has an inherent value. There is a price where it would always catch a bid. Equities are the same. In fact, you know, Justin said it more eloquently than I can, but every single day, pension funds have a mandate to buy equities through the 401k, you know, system. So that doesn't go away. That continues to, 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 to develop, well, you know, to execute automatically. When you look at the crypto world and you say, right, how can I value Bitcoin or how can I value Ethereum? And then all the way down after that, how do I value, you know, FTM? You get into a lot of trouble trying to work out what the terminal value of that asset is. And because of that, Justin's 100% right. You can easily go 90% lower than where you are today. No one thought that we would see the valuations we have right now in some of these tokens, but here we are. And the reason is that when momentum disappears, there's really nothing there that you can tangibly value. We can argue whether there is value and whether there might be value in the future, um, but at any given moment, things can just nuke 50% straight away. And that's why you know I'm not in a hurry uh, to do anything. And in my in my mind, most of the crypto space right now, as it stands today, and these things move very quickly, is uninvestable. Um, it, it is very difficult to come up with a a coherent argument as to why buying today is a good play versus waiting a week and seeing what happens. Um, because to Justin's point, um, the risk is all to the downside. Like what good news can happen that's going to shoot Bitcoin up 50%? Um, you know, uh, SBF came out and said, I'm going to backstop this thing with $2 billion. Nothing happened. He basically said, I'm not going to let it crash. No one cares. Dude, who get, dude right? $2 billion is like, you know, someone could, Nothing. someone in, in TradFi could get like slightly pissed off and erase that $2 billion. Uh, yeah. You yeah. know, it's like the, the right liquidation could, I mean, you know, if if I'm sure they're really well in tune with the lending situation enterprise wise with all of these like centralized crypto institutions. So maybe two billion is just exactly what we needed. Um, but like people are going to be unwinding for a while. Um, you know, you, you're going to have bankruptcy hearings with Voyager and Three Arrows Capital. Um People need to figure out what the hell they're going to do with all the money that just like vanished out of thin air. Um, and SBF, you know, as great at trading and stuff as they are, they can't like reverse the tide uh, because sentiment is just too awful. Uh, nobody wants like, you know, everybody's just thinking about rent. Everybody's just thinking about their mortgage payments. Everybody's thinking like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If crypto is like, you know, the way at the top, everybody's like, dude, I need to fucking worry about my dog, you know? No, exactly. Exactly. Even if you don't have bills, like, you just can't have a ton of money sitting there. Especially if you made so much in the last year. I like to bring back that headline. Crypto's down 50%, right? How much has it made in the last two years? How much is it up? Think about the people that bought early. They're just simply yeah. securing the money they've made. It's not that it's gone out of the market. It's just gone into my real-life bank account. And the yeah. thing about the real-life bank account, they love your money sitting there. They'll start calling you, offering me increases <laughs> and credit line. I'm serious. What what has MetaMask given me for my wallet address sitting money doing nothing? Nothing. So I'm going to cash out, right? Like, it's just how it is. Like, when I see cryptos down 50%, 
I see Phantom down uh, up how much X is from one cent even at the current prices. That's t- still like twenty seven X's. There's yeah. there's tons of people that bought just a year and a half ago that are still so up. That's why I look at the wallets that are is still in profit uh, metric because you know just because general crypto is down. There's people that have been invested for a while. So and until that sort of winds out, it is what it is. You know. Yeah. I actually, so my personal feeling on it was I was surprised that it wasn't more. So JTAS, you asked me uh, or you asked us what the what the metric was. So 500,000 users. So it was 500,000 actual users who um, made a investment in crypto assets by sending or receiving a payment to a digital asset platform. So I would assume it's a centralized exchange or, or, or otherwise. So basically it went from over a million in November down to 500,000. I'm a little surprised it's not more than 50% that have stopped because if, you, if I go talk to my friends and they're asking me if, if my life is okay and if I'm like if I'm you know able to get up in the morning and, and have a normal day that's sort of the the feeling on the streets um, I'm surprised it's not more than 50% so to me it's actually actually not that bad of a sign if that's how retail feels and 50% are still in the game then then I'm not too discouraged by that and I also don't think that this is really a retail game anymore anyway like it doesn't like even if that number was 80 percent or so investing it's not going to move the price of bitcoin um we need bigger players that are like, the next point going to take a long time to come back because of all the problems that we've seen across the ecosystem so um so awesome so moving on to the macro stuff uh so what's next on the macro horizon um i'm going to set the stage a little bit and and you guys can pick me apart for whether you think you know what i think is sort of a a V2 of the, or the next iteration of, of this macro uh, situation that we see in the economy. Um, and, and for me, it's, it's inflation and unemployment have, you know, historically maintained an inverse relationship. So it's also, it's known as, known as the Phillips curve. Um, and so typically low unemployment uh, corresponds with higher inflation and vice versa. Right. So um, right now we've got record low unemployment. I think it's the lowest it's been in like 20 years. Um, and our inflation is the highest it's been in 40. Uh, and I think that something in that has to flip. It's gotta, there's got to be some type of break to that. Um, and so I, I came across a few different things that I thought were interesting, but probably the, the most interesting one, um, and maybe not a huge surprise because tech stocks are down, you know, what, 40%. But um, Zuckerberg released a, a press release saying that Meta will only hire six to 7,000 new engineers in 2022 down from a uh, forecast of 10,000 um, and that layoffs are planned and it was pretty aggressive. I mean, he basically, he used the statement, we are going to trim the fat. Um, and so to me, they are offsetting losses in, in revenue and in stock price uh, by ratcheting up unemployment and, high, and, and rolling back hiring. So to me, that's where I, I see the next wave of this, this sort of recession going, um, but open to thoughts and feedback and would love to hear what you guys think. Yeah, everyone's cutting back. They're cutting back hiring. Um, they're trimming the fat. Um, most of these listed companies operate um, in a very inefficient way. Some of them have, you know, thousands of employees that they don't need. And that's fine in a bull market um, because you're in a competitive landscape. And when your three competitors are hiring and you're not, um, your shareholders start asking you why. So that all gets unwound. Um, and you can see it, you know, through all the announcements of these public companies, everyone's getting rid of somewhere between five to 20% of the workforce. You're going to see some bankruptcies. 
um, companies that should have gone bankrupt a year and a half to two years ago that have been um, kept afloat are going to go bankrupt, and that's a good thing. But people will lose their jobs. Um, in addition to that, <clears throat> you also have uh, good businesses that have been operating in a growth phase, <coughs> growth phase mindset, which is basically grow at all costs and optimize for growth, right? Optimize for revenue generation. And that's fine when you're in a specific regime, but there's been a regime change now in the markets, um, you know, across any industry that that's not on anymore, whether it's in private investing or the public equities markets, everyone now needs to optimize for free cash flow. They need to be profitable. So when you've set up your business to grow at a really, really fast pace, you've hired people that can help you, you know, with R&D, with product rollout, sales and marketing, and all of these teams need to be developed. And that's fine if you're trying to grow really quickly. If you want to make money, you need a completely different team and you start reducing, you know, you basically zero out R&D um, and, and you know, you, you, you reduce the sales and marketing team drastically and you try to optimize for the customers you already have so that you can make money. And when that happens, the share prices of these companies falls off a cliff because they were valued at a growth multiple and now they're no longer a growth company. And what you're going to start seeing is private equity take out some of these companies. The boys on the All In podcast um, the other day or a week ago, they spent a lot of time talking about Zendesk and they're getting taken out by private equity, which is a perfect example of everything I've just said. Um, and you're going to see a lot more of that. What does private equity do when they buy a business? They optimize for cash flow. That means they fire people. It's very simple, very simple model. They've got a lot of MBAs on the team, but their playbook is very simple. You fire... 30, 40, 50% of the workforce, and you optimize for cash. So unemployment is going to go up um, and inflation at the same time is not really going to come down anytime soon. None of the data indicates that's going to happen and you can just look at the oil price to see that. You can look at supply chains um, on, on, on food and other necessities. Um, you know, housing is very interesting. I think last week or, or two weeks ago, I was in here last week, you know, Justin was talking about a potential collapse in the housing market, and it's very interesting whether that's going to happen or not. Um, without a doubt, buying a home is now no longer an option for a large percentage of the population. But these people need to live somewhere. So you're going to see upward pressure on rents in some markets. And it's very interesting when you see upward pressure on rents, but downward pressure on prices. A certain segment of the, of, of the economy make out like bandits in that scenario. And that is real estate investors because now they can buy up all these assets at, at much better cap rates. So all of this needs to get worked out. It's going to be very interesting what happens, um, but I don't think any of the outcomes realistically result in a quick recovery. I think all the outcomes skew very heavily towards how low and for how long. Um, as it relates to the economy. And, and, you know, Powell is on the record as saying he's willing to crush the economy to fight inflation. That's what he said. Yep. He's on the record. We've got no reason not to believe him. Um, so when you kind of loop all of that in, um, having a, a, a bullish outlook over the next six months on, on, on equities, um, or any of these markets is is kind of 
silly. I'll add one more point, um, and and it's about credit spreads, credit spreads in corporate in the corporate bond market. So um, smart investors are very careful about where they sit in the capital stack as it relates to public equities. Um, and retail investors don't really have access to the debt markets. But when things are tough and the recession's coming and things are uncertain, you don't want to own the equity of the company. You want to own the debt of the company. The reason is that in bankruptcy, you get paid first. The bondholders always get paid first. And what you can see is a lot of money moving into the corporate bond market um, and, and, and not into the equity market for that reason. Um, unfortunately, most of us can't participate in those markets, but you can have a look at the spreads. As it relates to crypto, which is what we're here to talk about, so in a capital structure, you've got the debt, you've got the equity, and then you've got tokens. And most of us own tokens in in, in the crypto space. Um, So when you think of it in that context, that's really, really bad for all of us to be in that spot. Um, and as you can see with these bankruptcy hearings with Voyager and Celsius and whatever else is going to come, um, the equity holders are getting wiped out. And the equity holders were the smartest and most sophisticated players in the space. Regardless of the mistakes they've made, they were the smartest and the most sophisticated in the space. And we're subordinate to them in some of these, um, you know, uh, 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 projects. So it's kind of quite bleak in terms of the outlook over the next few quarters for those reasons. Even though it is bleak, you're, you're completely right. You, I think people can still play both sides of the parabola. Like we saw this thing go up immensely for, for years, months. Uh, any token you bought would just go up. Now you're starting to see a fallback. You're starting to see, you know, geopolitical, you know, shenanigans and, you know, macro outlook looking bad. But that doesn't mean you can't not make money. There's the whole side where, you know, that I want to I don't want to say bubble, but, you know, an inflated asset will start to kind of return down to pre levels, even retrace to the last year, like retracing, you know, last year's gains. Like that would be a big deal for some of these tokens. So I agree with everything you're saying, Nick. Um, and I and I do agree that things are, you know, everything's kind of deleveraging and things are kind of going back down because, we had a crazy run up, but play the other side of it. Play, you know some of these tokens are, are going down. Maybe now you're a little scared, obviously, you know, but you know, borrow against them with your stables, sell them, do things where you know that you're getting an edge on, you know, um the bear market because we're not gonna see this end. We need to see like a brutal, brutal wipeout. We need to see sentiment just completely obliterate and then just slow healthy uptrain oh, not just like one day not just one week over a long period of time so for now people are just you're, you're stuck you gotta either if you have capital preserve your capital so that now that you your purchase price can increase like you have more purchasing pro, uh, power not even off you doing anything just holding your stables you could do so many things here to kind of gain an edge. So play the other side of the markets going down. That's all. That's all I have to say. There, there that's will, what I'm doing. There, there will be a time to back up the truck. It's just not this week. There's there's too much we don't know yet. Um, but there's a lot to do. Like 24 said, you can learn a ton about you know how some of these uh, protocols work, some of these derivatives, some of these stable coins. Everyone's getting smarter um, about all of these stuff, and that's good. 
you know, let's not kid ourselves. Things just got way too heated, way too early, um, and we all got out of hand. And that's fine. It happens. Um, and it's just going to take some time for all of that to work itself out. But I think it will because everyone's going to get smarter. Everyone's going to get more sophisticated. Protocols are going to be uh, giving more disclosure. Um, and and these are just growing pains. But, yeah, I don't think this is, you know, today's the week to to start calling bottoms even if something's up 5% or not. In fact, it's probably a time to fade it, put a few shorts on because, um, you know, what what happens next to make this thing go to 25 um, you know, I don't know, like what SPF says, Hey, I've got 5 billion to backstop it. Like it, it, it's, it, I agree with Justin on that. I don't really see too many positive catalysts. Um, and they're throwing the kitchen sink at it. <laughs> so yeah. it's still not working, but anyway, let's move I on. mean, I, I do think that, that unemployment rises drastically. I think the Phillips curve does kick in and, and it has in every recession minus 1970, which are completely different or 75, completely different circumstances. So I think we're going to see a drastic rise in unemployment and it's going to, it's going to affect a lot of people. So it's going to be, um, yeah. you know, could get pretty bad. So, uh, Beavis, quick question. Uh, double sharp was supposed to ch- talk about chain link keepers and VRF. Is that something that, that you can chat about? Yeah, sure. All right, cool. We've been so, waiting for that for a while. On fact, I'm waiting for so a rise. Yeah. Rise in Gucci belts on Depop is what I'm <laughs> analyzing. Um, so cha- uh, okay. Uh, what about them? Impact for devs. Uh, VRF. Honestly, Double Sharp created uh, like um, a weird commit pattern for NFTs, where you can achieve randomness without uh, VRF pretty effectively and like uh, flexibly. You know, VRF is complicated to use. Is the problem because you need to like commit and then you need to like call and generate the random number on an external contract. Um, I think it would, it'll have some use cases uh, maybe in like gambling um, or more like serious financial stuff. Um, I think like it's been so long without VRF that we've kind of evolved beyond the need uh, for it to a certain extent. Um, as far as the chain link keepers though, um, Kind of like Gelato, except they leverage the Chainlink network. Um, so you have like really robust, secure architecture. Um, I, you know, am still of the opinion to a certain extent that designing your own keepers is better um, because, you know, I'm not sure how advanced Chainlink's MEV technology is. Um, so that would be like, you know, if Chainlink is just if it's just some node operator firing off a cron job with JavaScript or Rust or something, um, it, it's a lot more effective to actually look into the mempool uh, and and be able to propagate or front run or whatever transactions because, you know, keepers need to be like when things are most volatile and when things are most um important to actually propagate a transaction and and get something on chain. Um, That's when a lot of subpar keepers fail. Um, And I imagine, you know, knowing Chainlink, it's probably an excellent product. Um, I'm just like not 100% sure that keeper type products have that much fit. Um, It's just so easy. Go ahead. 
let me, let me just jump in and, and do a little bit of context setting. So uh, was that consensus obviously a few, you know, three or four weeks ago and, and the, the keepers, you know, one of the keepers kind of lead developers was on stage presenting on behalf of AVAX for their sort of overall AVAX presentation. This is actually a slide from that AVAX presentation on, um, you know, sort of the functionality of keepers for developers within the AVAX network. So that's, people are probably wondering why is there an AVAX logo on this slide? That is why. Um, but it, like, I mean, basically from a non-developer's perspective, Justin, like what is, what is keepers? Like in a simplistic form, like what is oh. this, what is this role? Why were they on stage touting it as such a, a yeah. for AVAX developers? So a keeper is just a bot. Um, and it's a bot that is specifically designed to act as um, an optimal party uh, for smart contract systems. So um, smart contracts, like it's not that easy to automate things. You need um, off-chain interactions, like you need someone to actually fire off the transaction. Um, so a keeper is just automation for the blockchain um and you know uh how we've done it for the past year or so um and how a lot of developers do it is they handle a lot of their automation just via um bots like like all the other automation is handled in the world and uh creating like resilient architectures um that you don't have to pay for uh is like great in my opinion and now i think right now we're at a weird place because all of the people developing web3 are going to be pretty talented programmers and they're going to have a pretty diverse set of skill sets um i can see keepers being more relevant maybe 10 20 years down the line when you know we're a little more similar to web2 and maybe like developing a bot isn't so easy um and maybe it, there is a lot of benefit to just uh you know having Chainlink or having Gelato handle that stuff. Um, you know, software as a service is really big for that reason. It's like, if you're a startup, you know, you don't want to hire an engineer that has to worry about bots and stuff. So you just hire Chainlink. Um, but right now it's like, uh, you know, I think their tech probably has a long way to go. Um, there is like a lot of existing products that do the same thing that have existed for years now. Um, the, the benefit there is you have the uh, resiliency and the 99.999999% uptime of the Chainlink network, which is the uh, really exciting thing. But, you know, I'm, I'm like not the best JavaScript guy and I can create a bot that has 99.9999% uptime. It'll just be centralized, you know. Um, and, and architectures exist to accomplish a lot of what they're accomplishing. So um, I love Chainlink. I think their uh, architectures are awesome um, as they relate to oracles. Uh, I don't think that level of robustness um, and uptime is really necessary for keepers. And it's not, and, and that level of decentralization, I think it's almost like, to a certain extent, inefficient. Um, and, you know... Uh, don't hate me, Chainlink guys, for saying this because I love Chainlink products, um, and I'm sure it'll be like one of the best guys ever, or, or one of the best uh, products ever eventually. Um, but right now, there's just not product market fit. Um, people literally will pay us to use their keepers, 
you know, with the idea of being, oh, depend on us and maybe in a year or two we'll start charging fees. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's like that, that, you know, margins are slim enough right now that uh, we don't need people noodling into our, our bottom line like that. Um, just my opinion, um, you know, uh, it, it's just too easy to make good keepers on your own. And, and honestly, like, you know, um, yeah, it, it is what it is, I think. And, and VRF, you know, uh, I think that's probably a lot bigger of a deal because that gives us access to like a really valuable primitive, especially for gaming um, and like gambling, if that's a thing people are into. Um, and, and probably some um, financial instruments uh, just because randomness is such a powerful measure, especially when you're trying to project um, things like crypto, where, you know, there is, you know, when you're designing a stochastic or when you're designing a, a, a model, um, randomness is often part of the equation. So we, we will probably eventually see some interesting stuff uh, in that vein. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's is, probably all my VRF thought. Is VRF helpful for like verifiable randomness of like minting NFTs? Yeah, I mean, it, it is. Um, the nice thing is like you get uh, a chain link tweet. That's really the main use of VRF <laughs> is you get a chain link tweet for your project. Um, if you use it, I would say uh, technically it's like there are enough patterns that exist that don't rely on VRF. Um, to achieve randomness or to achieve a safe mint um, that, you know, they have a lot of competition and it's competition that's easier to implement than their uh, contract and doesn't involve an external dependency, which is like, you know, when you're, you know, building these systems, uh, it, it's just a hard sell for the NFT stuff. Um, getting into the finance stuff, the gambling stuff, I think Chainlink VRF is a no-brainer. Like seeing Chainlink VRF on on like a gambling site will tell you, okay, they're they're not you know deterministically doing something silly in the background that's stealing all my money. Um, and yeah, JTask, yeah, it's like this stuff costs money, and the alternatives are free and are open source and exist. Um, but uh, yeah. Um, I think there are situations where it works. It's just uh, fewer than than we may think, and fewer than than we may see in the near future. Justin, do All you right. think that, that that do you think Chainlink is 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 big enough right now that they can fend off any competition for, for the categories that they compete in around um, you know the price oracles and. You know, now you're saying there's a little bit of competition on the VRF front, but do, do you just think that they are the clear winner in this space? Um, just oracles, and I think, uh, yeah, I mean, the problem is, like, they do not F around. Like, if you use Chainlink, they don't want you using any other Oracle provider as a primary Oracle. Um, so they're really, really trying to cement their monopoly, which, you know, considering the level of seriousness and considering how important oracles are, I would say, like, I'm not going to, you know, cast aspersions there. I think, you know, if all of the capital, if all of the oracle-related capital uh, was sucked up by Chainlink, um, 
I think it wouldn't be a huge deal uh, because we need like every in, in software architecture, you, you say how many nines does something have? And that refers to uh, the uptime um, of something, the resiliency. So it's like, I want something with 10 nines. That would be like 99.9999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999
bull market Chainlink had everybody in the palm of their hand uh, just because, you know, dumping link was, uh, you know, a good way to have infinite money. Um, but now context is changing. Uh, you know, we may see regime changes in, in the world of oracles, um, but it will take a lot for something like that to happen, I think. Um, and Ch Chainlink does like need to, they have like arbitrary uh, requirements to get an Oracle um, that don't like, it's like if, if a problem like being like oral security needed multiplication or needed like, you know, something like that, um, they're using addition uh, to figure out like whether or not a, an asset is worthy of being listed. And it makes it hard to work with them. They're easy to work with in that they have infinite account managers, but they're hard to work with in that their requirements are extremely stringent. And a lot of the assets they added during the bull market don't come anywhere close to meeting them now. So it's like, as a developer, I'm like, really? Like, you know, uh, so it it is uh, what it is. Um, I think they can totally monopolize the Oracle market. Um, they just need to, you know, figure something out. Um, because like, I long for a day I can work with competitors, uh, without like having to fear like our ability to utilize chain link. Um, but That's some gangster shit right I, what, there. <laughs> like, you know, when Boo, Boo got, um, you know, chain link and was working with chain link and obviously they're on the granary. I mean, isn't it like pretty vital that more phantom tokens get you know, like Chainlink support? Like you can't really put any of the other ones on without price feeds from Chainlink to Granary to other lending platforms. I mean, it just seems like a huge blocker for phantom ecosystem tokens to, to be able to do a lot of different things. I don't want to yeah. get too far down the road, but it's to me, that's what it feels like. And Chainlink kind of like, you know, because they have that monopoly and because like some people get special treatment, some people don't, uh, you know, and um it is, uh, you know, again, all of the people I've worked with, with from Chainlink have been like really wonderful. But um, policy wise, you know, as someone who allocates talent and allocates engineering power and, you know, chooses technology uh, for the Web3 space, it's like um, I would be eager for an alternative. And um, in my opinion, the best like oracles in the game uh, would be Uni V3. Uh, they have oracles that, in my opinion, like as long as you have deep Uni V3 liquidity, um, you have a really, really nice, easy to use price feed that is totally on chain. So it doesn't rely on, um, you know, other uh, opinions. Um, and then beyond that, uh, Tellor. I think uh, has a really good product and um, they're like a super, super, super decentralized uh, price feed. Um, the problem is those like Teller has a really niche use case and Uni V3 kind of invalidates it. So once we get Uni V3 more chains and, and, and more places, um, probably like people might be moving away from Chainlink. Like you look at Euler Finance, they're run totally on Uni V3 oracles. Um, and, uh, you know, they've done a lot of great research in terms of designing Uni V3 based oracles and securing them. Um, 
and that research is all public open source and they're like really vocal about it. So, you know, I think there could literally be a time where Uniswap is replaces Chainlink. Um, and uh, yeah, but that's years down the line. Right now, Chainlink has a monopoly and it's just everybody is trying to shake it um, to a certain extent. Uh, and they have the domain name smartcontract.com or whatever, which that's, is a pretty, pretty good one. Pretty sick domain. <laughs> so, so sticking with uh, sticking with the the token that has the chainlink price read in Boo. So, uh, yes, Savo, I did see a four hundred thousand dollar Boo buy just happened a second ago, and the price went up about eighteen percent. So that's a, a nice scandal, but. It also shows you how far we need to go, how much money we need, how much capital inflow needs to come in to get back even close to all-time highs, right? Oh. Uh, 25 cents on a, on a 400K buy. So uh, <laughs> sticking, with, <laughs> sticking, sticking with you, um, I listened to a spooky swap AMA this week um, with Owen talking about the importance of UI and UX and DeFi. Um, yep. And I think it's a really important topic. And I know that, you know, Phantom took a lot of kind of shit when, when Miles put out that, uh, that Phantom needs a potential rebrand based on all the spooky themes and, you know, the lack of professionalism and all of that, you know, back and forth that everyone had. Um, but just curious as you guys thoughts, I know that, you know, Spooky Swap rolled out a VTUI uh, on Spooky.Fi that, that looks really great. Um, but, you know, the whole conversation was around, you know, the next iteration of what, uh, the, you know, the 2024 bull run or whenever it comes is how important is UI UX, you think, in this next iteration of what comes uh, to crypto? Extremely important. I'm just going to steal Rich Maybe's uh, comment here. You just think about what's happened in our little small space in terms of UI UX. Um, the projects that have risen to the top, you know, the cream of the creme have been the best UI UX, like, in terms of like spooky swap for decks, people flock there because the experience now, obviously there's Beethoven and aggregators that people use, but first and foremost, people like to see things done quickly and smoothly screen. Um, now I guess things are kind of dying down there, but it was the top lender on phantom most TVL for, for quite some time because of how beautiful the site was like, um, how fast things were done, the pop-ups, how it looked. So user experience and, and user interfaces is probably one of the few things you could probably just continue to work on until things come back up. So it's super important. Yeah, I saw Firebird Finance has a new UI, and actually it looks really, really like awesome. Um, and, and the user experience has, has like improved massively in my mind just purely off the UI. Um, Nick, you know, for, from a, <clears throat> a perspective of, of capital investment and getting investors and people who want to come in and be a part of your, your company from like from a web two to web three transition. Um, how important do you think that this UI um, updates are going to be for kind of the future of phantom protocols? Yeah, look, it depends on, you know, who you're trying to attract. Um, obviously uh, uh, good UX is better than bad UX. Um, but having said that, a lot of these protocols, I don't want to say don't work, but they've been poorly thought out and there's security flaws and there are ways to game the system and there are mistakes that have been made. So in a world of scarce resources, and Justin would know more about this than I do, where you have to allocate 
you know, your human capital onto certain problems. Sure, UX is important, but securing everybody's funds and making sure that the system isn't exploitable, either via a hack or via gaming the system, has to come first. Um, so, yeah, I'm all for UX, but, you know, I think we've got some other issues that need to be solved in a lot of different areas for some of these projects, um, you know, before we focus on on UX, because UX will just get better over time um, as you want mass adoption. But a lot of these things are not ready for mass adoption today. Justin, like, is, is that an accurate position to take? Uh, yeah. Um, like UX, uh, I would say is the most important, um, element for DeFi. Like literally we are working on peer to peer finance, uh, you know, emphasis on peer that is individual users, retail, like they're not going to be using an API. They're not going to settle for a shit experience. They're not going to be patient uh, you know, you look at bounce rates for websites that take more than like one second to load. Um, you know, it, it's, it's pretty grim and it's pretty challenging. And right now, like, you know, web two has been through its, you know, tech phase and, and it's kind of like a privilege of firms that have been around for a year or two years or beyond to actually switch focus to UX because you need like, really well-running, solid back-end tech, smart contracts, you know, middleware, bots, keepers, whatever. You need all of that to be on point to support the UX. And, um, you know, going into like Byte Mason's philosophy, like UX is something we think about the second we start designing a smart contract system. Um, I think, you know, in our smart contracts, you'll see a lot of front-end helpers. In our smart contracts, you'll see a lot of zappers. You'll see a lot of, uh, you know, weird shit like that. Uh, I, I guess it's not weird, but it's like you need to design for the end user, like to have their experience be better than anyone else's. Otherwise, they're just going to go elsewhere. And um, tax efficiency is something we think a lot about during design. Like, okay, is this easy to account for? like the way we're managing transactions. Um, is it efficient tax-wise? Is it capital efficient? And I mean, you're, you know, talking about product market fit, it's like, you know, can users enter and exit a position on demand? Um, like, you know, one of the UX issues we've been talking about nonstop for Reliquary is like locking tokens is shit UX. Um, it's confusing. It's, it's hard to understand. VE mechanisms are really kind of arcane. Can we like achieve or can we pinpoint or can we program similar behaviors without having to muddy up the actual user experience? Um, and, and that needs to happen at a very low level that needs to be thought about very early in the design process. Um, and, you know, Reliquary, we've been working on the UI UX for longer than we worked on the smart contracts probably. Um, and, and it's like figuring out like, who do we want to please with this UX? Like what's, what's our user story? Who's our target user? Who's our tier one, tier two, th tier three user? And how do we make sure we can make all of them as happy as possible? Um, and like, 
you know, Web3 has an adoption problem. So now you need to think about not only is the experience really smooth, but will the experience engage and, and actually capture a user, um, which is like even more challenging than just like designing like a super clean UX. Um, so probably the apps you see us releasing over the next six months are going to be like a lot more UX focused than necessarily uh, Reaper or Granary. Um, you know, Reaper, we were fulfilling a need. Like UX was like, okay, you know, we need this tech. It's urgent. And now the competition is is at a level where it's like, you know, they don't need it. Uh, so how can we just make it better than everything else? Um, and, you know, working on front end stuff is really low risk as well. So you're talking about like, security and investment it's like okay if if i you know why don't i use the blockchain as a source of data and focus on you know batching transactions and making the experience super tight and then put a lot of the computational logic off chain um so that you know we can invest a ton of time in making the front end really crazy and awesome. And that's also something that's harder to fork and harder to copy. Um, and, and there are just like a ton of reasons to invest in, in good UX. And SpookySwap has had one of the best in the entire industry for quite a long time. Um, so, you know, they're setting the bar very high. Uh, and like Uniswap isn't even there yet. Like, I don't know how, how they did it, but like they figured something out that, that nobody else could. And, and DeFi front ends right now are just so like overly complex, weird, uh, you know, like going back to Euler Finance, like some of my favorite tech in the game right now, you know, you, you go to their front end, it's kind of pretty. You could tell they had a UX designer work on it and then you try to use it and it's like, what the fuck is going on? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, um, people need to people need to stop thinking about like they can't you can't be a nerd and go into ux design you can't be like uh you know a, a geek tech guy like you know like oh this data point is you know xyz dude i if they press the button you know i'm gonna give them a million options it's like you know just have a click a button like you know just click a button bro uh you, you don't need to give all that thinking weight to your users. I mean, I would, I would kind of argue. So Nick, to your, your point about, you know, having sound code and, and not having, you know, hacks and all the vulnerabilities, like at some point that has to become table stakes, right? We have to get, we have to get projects and developers that are good enough that are worth their salt that we don't, we know, we know how to vet projects. We're not putting our money into potential vulnerabilities, but like to usher in the next million people that are not, you know, the people watching this show and, and the four of us, I think you need really high level, awesome education and you need really, really intuitive UX UI. And so for me, I think that the next bull run, that really has to be a focal point for, for a lot of the protocols. And I see, you know, Jgas calling out Beethoven um, oh. you know, for some other things. I, I saw in their latest uh, concerto program that they're going to be, it said they're going to be releasing a new UI at the end of July, which I'm excited to see. Um, yeah. So there's definitely a lot of, of, of things that are, are going on on the UI side. 24, do you want to add anything, brother? No, I wanted to say, man, I just had a random thought because we're talking about onboarding users next cycle. Uh, spooky swap. I used to be, first of all, my I have friends that, that have been in crypto for quite some time. They've been trying to get me in, and I was that guy. Yo, this is a scam, man. 
not buying your internet tokens. This is a scam. This is a scam. And it was SpookySwap that, that got me into it because, you know, the site was so smooth. I've never had, like, money on my browser before. It was an awesome experience. But you're talking about onboarding users. And I'm like, are we ever going to get a situation where everyone's sitting at home because of COVID? They have excess money due to government, you know. I literally talked to my Canadian <laughs> friends, literally. It was the first time in a lot of my friends' lives they were able to, you know, save money. They were students, right? They were in school, work, or sorry, doing school from home, getting checks every two weeks. Are we ever going to get those certain set of circumstances where people are like me that, that definitely did not want to touch crypto or like, damn, I'm staring at this every day. You know, let me give it a shot. I just don't – I'm not sure. I'm not sure if this – like, are we ever going to get that perfect set of circumstances where we get a bunch of retail in? They want to buy their Shiba Inus. They want to, you know, invest and make money on the internet. They're all at home. Oh, man. It's uh, tough, perfect man. storm. Perfect storm. Yeah. Literally. Literally perfect. Excess money, you know, free time to look into the stuff. Oh, who knows, yeah. man? Who knows? It's yeah, it, it may not happen like that again, but I think you know, as we've seen historically, every time Bitcoin takes off, like it, the the retail FOMO absolutely kicks up again. So, um, so, so speaking of uh, uh, one that we haven't spoken about in actually quite some time um, is uh, Retreat, and so we saw this Creep. week that Tree <laughs> was listed on Felix, uh, and they launched their retailer app. And it's now in beta testing. And so my my perspective on Retrieve is they have very lofty goals. Like the payment system space, super competitive. Um, getting people to adopt a payment system through crypto with all that's gone on in the last three months is uh, is going to be a challenge. But a couple of things that stood out to me here and I want to get you guys' thoughts on. So, um, you know, Beavis, you mentioned about sort of how seamless UX and, and user experience and kind of taking data off chain and doing things in different ways that are you know, more focal for the actual user themselves is a benefit. And, and in Treve's press release, they said to make blockchain, uh, excuse me, to make blockchain mainstream, you have to make it seamless. Uh, we make Web3 almost invisible to the end user to make it more accessible. Um, so, you know, I thought that was a pretty, you know, a, a really powerful statement. Um, so, you know, what do you guys think about sort of what they're they're up to, and have you seen? You know, did you see the release of kind of how the, the retailer app looks, um, and and, you know, and what potential success do you think you could have? I haven't seen the app, but Tree seems to have like the right idea, and they seem to have a lot of well thought out, um, like moves. I guess uh, the funny thing is, like, you know, you think about how hard it is to abstract something. Right now, Treeb is an entire business designed around abstracting away token transfers, you know? Um, and you think about, okay, how many degrees of complexity do all of the other use cases have? Every, like, you know, you, you call a transfer, like, let's say that's one variable. You're updating one variable. It's a single action. And abstracting that away takes whatever. Then you think about, okay, what's what's the next thing? Maybe a swap, okay? And then what's the next thing? Maybe farming. What's the next thing? Okay, maybe like uh, full farming strategies, okay? You have something like Reaper. And like our abstraction timeline for Reaper, like, is so long. Like, 
I think everybody has the same goal as Treeb. At least everybody like that has a, a decently long time horizon. Um, but like Reaper, you know, eventually we want to have like a really clean, like you know, corporate banking app uh, that that's powered by Reaper. But you know, you're talking legal infrastructure. You're talking technical infrastructure. You're talking like reliability infrastructure, like, you know, even more keepers, even more resiliency, like operating at the level we're at with like power users, we can work off of like two, three nines, you know, 99.999% uptime uh, for keepers and stuff like that. If we want to please users and we want a million, two million, three million users, every nine you knock off of that is, you know, a hundred phone calls, you know, um, and, and you, you look at it from a customer service perspective or whatever, Every every single minute issue that's wrong at scale costs your customer service and and your like community management teams you know tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, so like getting to a level where you can actually abstract away like the low level shit like this or, or and, and the really complex stuff um, is tough. And and Reaper in itself is an abstraction, but like it has like. Literally, we look at where we want to go and it's like a mountain we need to climb. It's like, OK, right now, you know, multi-chain is coming out soon. People still have to click on different chains. People still have to do annoying shit with their MetaMask. OK, there's a problem, you know, and then it's like, OK, now we need to create architectures to do cross-chain deposits and, you know, home chain to destination chain without users knowing, bada, bada, bada. That takes another, you know, three, four, five months. And it's like, OK, now we need to abstract away gas. That takes six months. Um, you know, it's like, uh, you know, now we need an iPhone app. We got to hire 20 lawyers. You know, it's freaking uh, um, I respect what Treep is doing. And, and it's definitely like uh, we need to start with the simple use cases because they'll kind of uh, blaze the trail uh, for a lot of the, the DeFi stuff. Um, so, yeah, uh, long story short, they have the right idea. And, um, you know, uh, I not. I, I don't know much about their business, uh, but um, everything I've seen has has seemed well uh, thought out, uh, which is the important part. Yeah, they have they have apps on or they have an app on the i the i uh, iPhone and the Android stores, so they they must have cleared that hurdle legal. Nick, what's what's their take rate on merchants? What are their fees? Um. As they as they take uh, so imagine they take as much as industry rate so whatever Venmo uh, or Square or something takes and then mm-hmm. they cut that in half they distribute or they cut that into three parts so the two bulky parts they distribute one to tree holders I believe and then mm-hmm. they uh, donate the other to some kind of cause. And then they have their profit margin. So, you know, I will say like, you know, not getting into the business model too deep, but blockchain does enable like a lot of really lightweight teams to execute on stuff like this. So, you know, blockchain handles security, blockchain handles remittance, blockchain handles a lot of the accounting XYZ. So suddenly there's 30 to 40% of your team if you're talking about like, you know, margins and a lot of that is really expensive, 30 to 40 percent. So, you know, you can have really few engineers and they're operating off transfer. So they can probably have just a team of one or two engineers. Um, they can succeed with a model like that. I think I've thought about it quite a bit. Uh, it, it's just like they can't ever be corporate and they can't ever like dominate 
to an extreme degree. Um, but it, if they can get very, users, they can be profitable. That's very competitive space. Um, I'm in the e-commerce business, so I know a little bit about this. If you walk in off the street, you're paying 2.9% um, with with PayPal, with um, mm-hmm. with Stripe, plus a flag fall, 25 to 30 cents. If you if you end up at some size like we are, we end up paying somewhere around 120 basis points plus the flag fall. So it, it, it's you know the margins are pretty thin, and that's that volume. Um, so you know it'd be great if they pull it off. It just gives another another you know option for merchants because 2.9% is a lot, and you don't get a better rate until you're doing you know millions of dollars oh, in yeah. revenue. Um, so you know if they can be competitive. I mean, giving away a third of it just sounds like a marketing kind of gimmick to me. Usually when I see these things, um, and granted, this has been not in crypto. It's It's been all about outside of crypto. It never works out because they can never compete um, by giving away so much of their margin. But to Justin's point, if the cost structure is different because of the blockchain, then the economics change, the unit economics change, and you can give away some of it. I mean, I'm on their homepage now. It says ethical payment solutions. Seems like a noble pursuit. Um, I'm going to look into it. I know a little bit about it, but I haven't really analysed it. But but since yeah. they're in beta, it's probably worth having a look at now. Yeah, they, they, they don't specify in the white paper what their percentage of take rate is on a transaction fee. So I don't, you know, all, it's, all it basically does is break down that 33% goes back to the cause of your choice and then and then 66% is kept by retrieved themselves. Um, oh, nice, okay. Ha- yeah, you, 24. Go ahead, buddy. I was gonna say, if you want to learn about Treeb, yo, ch- check out uh, Crypto Justina Treeb. It's a very good video. She talks about, you know, the investment. I think you should check it out. So, you know Crypto Justina is though. <laughs> they, they, if, if their cost structure is not lower than two point nine percent, it's game yeah. over. Because you know, when you think about like charitable causes and things like that. People will participate as long as it doesn't cost them any extra. No one's going to pay 3.5% because some of it's going to go to a charity. People are in business to make money. So, you know, if I was in the room and, and they were advocating for, yeah, we can charge more because we're giving some of it away, mm. that that's not going to work. You have to be at least on par with the competitors and then work out how to reduce your cost basis so that you can give some of it away. And now you have an advantage. Um but, but yeah, I'll look into it. It's interesting. What, so one other thing I wanted to bring up here, guys. So this jumped out at me, and, and let's try to keep this to, to five minutes. Like just a couple of thoughts from everybody because we got a bunch more to get to. But um, in this model, I know that <laughs> probably be hard, right? In this model, um, they've got they've got a two token system. So so the tree of utility token, that's the, the token you can buy on Spooky Swap, and then um, and then the stable assets. So this so your funds are paid through S tree. So S-Tree is oh. a stable multi-asset that follows the euro in the European Union countries and the uh, and then the CHF in Switzerland. Um, knowing what we know now, after what we've just seen with, with with every stable coin debacle that's gone down in the last you know three months, like how what would you advocate here if, if you know that they're trying to keep things that are pegged to the euros and, and otherwise? Like like, do you think that's a good route to, to take this business model? They they would be they they would be silly not to kind of revisit their assumptions around that. Um, I don't know enough about it, but they they should have watched everything that's happened very closely 
and adjusted what they think they're going to do because they can change whatever they want. They haven't launched yet. So, you know, they've got a blank slate. They have a bunch of information about what hasn't worked and they should use it. If, they, if they're stubborn and they don't change anything because they think they've cracked it, um, then they might run into trouble, uh, you know, but it's an opportunity for them for sure that all this happened. It gives them some time and it gives them some information as a reference point. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, for everything that's happened with stablecoins, um, I still think it's probably the best DeFi product to date. Um, probably highest, you know, level of product market fit. It enables swapping. It enables everything. Um, now, uh, you know, whether or not that's a smart move for Treeb, I think depends on their approach. And it seems like they've been like, you know, had a pretty reasonable approach to everything. Um, I think like when you get into the stablecoin game, um, you're like, you need to think at a large magnitude. Uh, So like you need to imagine how will this token scale and how will it give us an advantage over competitors? Because if they're managing remittances with a native stablecoin, then suddenly, you know, they're not paying for usage. Like it doesn't cost them money to do all these remittances and and manage all this stuff. They are making money because at that point, you know, they have this stable coin that is essentially a loan they're giving to themselves uh, or a loan they're giving to their users. And that gives them a lot of flexibility on the background. And now we've seen that flexibility kind of bite people in the ass. Um, but uh, if they if they approach it really intelligently, then, you know, they they could literally like that would subsidize the entire charity donation and then some. Um you know, if, mm-hmm. if even if they're like, okay, they, you know, buy T-bonds with all of the capital users are putting on uh, the uh, app and then they're just issuing stable coins and they're generating yield on all the stable coins people are getting issued, even if it's something like super, super risk off, which if they want to go pedal to the metal, you know, the market is low as fuck. Maybe, you know, now's the time to do that and, and they can um, suddenly have like, you know, a capital base as, as big as Venmo's, uh, at least maybe per uh, employee or, or per whatever. <laughs> so uh, DeFi, DeFi enables this stuff. And I think that's an astute decision on their part. It's just like they can't misstep uh, because, you know, it's, kind, it's not easy. Uh, yeah. And I doubt, I doubt they'll misstep. I think, um, you know, really wise move. CeeLo, uh, I'm I'm a big fan of CeeLo, even though, you know, I think they could do a lot of stuff better. Um, they were smart. They were like, okay, stable coin out the gate. We're like how people create blockchains to generate value and all of that. Like stable coins are the DeFi version of that. Like if you are building an ecosystem on top of a stable coin and your stable coin is able to scale as the ecosystem scales, suddenly that's your entire profit margin. And you can just like, do everything else for free. It's like, who, who cares? I have a stable coin. I'm generating all this interest like at, at really low risk and, and I'm capitalizing usership uh, in, in like a lossless way. That's like, you know, ad revenue for, uh, for, for DeFi companies. Um, 
but yeah, it, it is like uh, astute on their part. And don't hate stable coins. Uh, stable coins are freaking dope. Um, not going to say more than that. <laughs> Love it. Well, I'll be interested to see how, how it all plays out with Retrieve. And uh, obviously, good luck to, to what they're doing. So, Treeb. Treeb. Uh, uh, 24. Should we move on to the USDC FUD? My yes, friend? yes. We yes. talk about stable coins. So, I guys, I, some I, comments. I, had to, I, had to, I had to write down fully what happened here in my, my chicken scratch handwriting because there was so much that was in uh, kind of secession as to what this. Uh, so, Geralt Davidson, you know, whoever that is on Twitter, uh, basically claimed that, that USDC was in, um, you know, and, and basically could go insolvent. So, Circle. The Circle SPAC IPO following uh, shows that they're losing money. Uh, they're at major risk of default on USDC reserves. Uh, Circle pays a higher rate of what Signature and Silvergate, who are the banks that they work with, are normally making on cash deposits. Um, it's 5% apparently is the, is the rate of which they're paying per year, which means they're losing money. $500 million lost in 2021, uh, $1.5 billion in 2022 apparently. Um, and then further, the USDC reserves are being um, invested and recycled, you know, basically banks fractionalized reserves using as banks fractionalized reserves. And they're in partnership with Shady Offshore Company uh, for lending to avoid U.S. controls and disclosures. Now, this USDC that's, you know, within the circles, um, you know, bank account is getting lent to high risk lenders like Genesis, BlockFi, Immediate, uh, Celsius, all of the players we've seen fold. Uh, and apparently the whole estimate is to be somewhere between three to five billion among the lenders. And they are at risk of a bank run. Uh, and this is a dirty secret being held by the hedge funds, Circle, and their banks. Uh, so is any of that accurate? I I, I don't know. This is this is so what's been the tell me again. So so Circle is filing for a SPAC? Is, yep. is that what mm -hmm. so if they're filing for a SPAC? then a lot of the dealing with shady offshore banks and doing a lot of this crazy stuff that maybe is in the thread, which I haven't, which I haven't read, is probably not true, right? Because if you're doing shady shit, you don't go public. You don't try to go public. You try to hide everything. So that would be my first kind of position, would be very skeptical, but I'll go read it. I haven't read the thread, nor... Um, it's it's an infographic and it, it is uh, not very robust. Um, I think there's probably some amount of truth to it. Like like I just said, like, you know, a stable coin gives you a lot of flexibility in the background. Um, and the thing is, they're just operating like a financial institution. The tough thing is crypto financial institutions kind of have been getting their uh, butts dinkled. Um, so like... <laughs> I go. think, you know, uh, if they were doing DJing shit, I think that's, you know, a problem. The thing is, like, when did BlackRock take over USDC management? Um, was that, like, three months yeah. ago? Yeah, sorry to cut you off, Justin, but th this oh, IPO sure. was listed with the SEC a year ago. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, something doesn't add up. It's not like this is breaking news, but uh, I'll go read it. But yeah, it was, yeah. it was listed a year ago. I'm on the SEC site now. Um, and yeah, okay. All right. And there were some new documents that were filed um, in June 
But anyway, it's worth looking into. But let me tell you this. If USDC folds, we're fucked. <laughs> it's very, very simple, that equation. Um, so yeah. it's, it's worth reading. I'm going to yeah. go. I'll I mean, read all the... Yeah. Same thing as, as the Tetherfoot. It's like, you know, it, it, they are at this point nearing too big to fail territory. Um, so, you know, it's like if you operate under the assumption that USDC might fail, then you like you're just you would just have cash sitting in your bank account. Uh, or maybe even like, you know, how do you go more off risk than that? You have silver and gold and like treasury bonds or some shit. Uh, but um, yeah, it, it is like kind of par for the course, it seems um, like, OK, crypto institution, you know, investing in crypto, doing some dumb shit, um, you know, probably not fully backed or at least, you know, a lot of their backing might be notional right now. Um, my question is, like, who's redeeming, you know? Um, like, can are, are we going to get $5 billion of redemptions? Uh, <coughs> and uh, is, is USDC, like, like if, if BlackRock wants to own USDC, you know, would they be willing to uh, cover that? Or, or are USDC holders just fucked? I don't know. I don't know enough to actually uh, comment on that. But compared to other stable coins, I'm still uh, in the USDC game. It, it, it needs to be disclosed, right? So there's active filings going on as of a month ago. So it, it's not like Tether where we just speculate and just go with their one report. Um, there are actually audited reports that need to be filed if they haven't been filed already. So uh, yeah. the answers are in there. Um, and because it's been public for a month, um, people read this stuff, like investment bankers are involved. There's a lot of fees involved in taking something public. Um, and I just can't imagine it's as bad as this guy makes out because something yeah. would have happened yeah, already. Exactly. Um, but it's worth reading, certainly. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll spend some time looking into it. It's good That's when you funny. have information to read and you don't have yeah. to guess. <laughs> it's cool, but it's it's definitely uh, you know interesting. Maybe it's time for for us to move to a more decentralized stablecoin like LUSD. Uh, but like, oh. you know, if you, if USDC folds, Ethereum goes to like fucking a hundred dollars. So wouldn't uh, <laughs> it pump for a little bit? Oh, well, that's what I'm curious about. Like, obviously, the liquidities are based on these tokens, but. Wouldn't they sell into the tokens? I don't know. It definitely will fall, but they're probably the selling. Of... It's probably like a lot of it will happen on Curve and Uni V3. Um, so it'll just be like a stable coin to stable coin, uh, oh, okay. yeah. you know, movement. I don't imagine they're dumping into ETH. Like when a stable coin is collapsing, you want to go off risk. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, um, probably we see Curve explode, and then probably we see uh, Uni V3 start to explode. Um, and then we're back to like the stone ages and we're all trading chick coins on uni v2 again uh, with like you know risk counter assets so yeah we'll we'll see what happens uh, I I would be very surprised if uh, it was actually as serious as uh, the infographic made it seem 
Yeah, I think a, a good lesson there is always go layers deeper than what you see on Twitter. Nick, you always say, <laughs> if, if you're making your investment decisions based on uh, Twitter releases, then you're in trouble. Um, and so, yeah, I think Big it's, a, trouble. it's a good takeaway. Um, awesome. So, uh, Beavis, I wanted to chat through something that the Byte Masons put out this week. Uh, multi-strategy crypts are now live on pain.finance. So, um you know, super exciting. Wanted to see kind of what you, you know, had to say, what your thoughts are and, and what to expect. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, testing is, is going really well. Kind of the mission is uh, to have maybe the best uh, vault architecture out right now. You know, Yearn V3 is going to be coming out in the next three, four, five, six months. Um, and uh, we were like, okay, retail does not give a shit. Yield is low. Demand sucks. Um, let's just bite the bullet and focus on uh, multi-strategies um, because multi-strategies give us an opportunity to scale to, you know, billion dollar vaults. And it turns like, you know, a simple like utility like our, our current crypts into what can essentially be like an actively managed uh, position. And then you're, you know, you talk about tax efficiency. It's like you never need to withdraw from this shit um, and you're constantly yielding market best rates and um you know yearn charges like you know uh hedge fund level fees so they have um a two percent management fee so no matter what you're yielding they're going to take two percent and then twenty percent on performance um so that would be like all of the actual interest generated they're taking twenty percent off the top of that so we're like you know uh yeah, it's it's for DeFi. It's like, bro, I thought we were supposed to uh, separate <laughs> ourselves from, from ZFi here. But um, yeah, so so we're just looking at coming to market with like, uh, you know, sticking to kind of the low fee theme um, and then just like focusing all of our energy on these single asset uh, multi-strategy crypts. So it's like, you know, infinite scalability, infinite flexibility, super, super high security. And it gives us like, you know, something that we can invest a ton of resources in as like an individual uh, kind of artifact, um, which is like really nice because now it's like, okay, you know, when we're not auditing anything, when we don't have like a bunch of code reviews we need to do and our security guys are just sitting down like reading white papers and shit, uh, we can just say, hey, let's, you know, let's work on, uh, you know, security infrastructure for uh, for the multi-strategies. And it's like infinite security dump, like, you know, any downtime is like, okay, let's make some automation, let's make some fail safes, uh, let's do X, Y, Z. Um, and uh, for strategists, it's like, okay, let's, you know, figure out what we can do with these bad boys. Um, and we have kind of a different uh, risk profile than um, like say urine, for example. So, uh, and, and like, uh, you know, urine is kind of focused on fully decentralized, like this needs to be a rock. Um, and we're like, okay, the smart contracts are going to be a rock, but we're going to manage them with like, you know, AI, you know, off chain um, and and try to optimize that way uh, so we can like extract better yield um, with lower fees. So, you know, uh, I've learned a lot from Yearn and we really love Yearn and um, we really also want to be on Ethereum um, competing 
with them. Um, and that's like really, really hard to do because they're not like the nicest competitors in the world. Um, but, uh, you know, our, our goal in this bear market is to develop a strong presence on Ethereum. And basically all of the software projects we work on, like, I remember people were like, oh, why, why are you working on all these things that aren't Reaper? Bah, 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 bah. It's like, dude, Reaper exists to aggregate, you know, yield and, and abstract protocol. Like, why would we not try to horizontally and vertically integrate oh. that way? Um, so we're going to have Granary. We're going to have uh, some of our secret projects. Uh, we're going to have Reliquary just trying to drive usership um, and uh, keep these super low. And um, we kind of have a totally different value prop. Uh, than Yearn, and our tech is technically better right now. Uh, you know, we're we're ERC forty six twenty six compliant. We have like a more modern compiler version. Um, not that that's a huge deal. I don't think users will care. I think it will let people build on our vaults easier, uh, yeah. and they're written in Solidity, um, so it will like you know be easier for developers in general. So, yeah, it, it's like, uh, you know, we're going to try really, really hard to make these kind of the place to be if you're looking for actual good yield, um, because, you know, Yearn is kind of going after crypto institutions. So I call it like the group chat economy. They have all their friends that run all these other projects and then they just integrate with Yearn and they kind of, you know, you deposit an Alchemix, you're forced to deal with the Yearn fee uh, because Yearn is splitting it with them. And it's kind of like Yearn gets money. Uh, the people that integrate with us get money, users get fucked. Um, and, and we're kind of trying to create value propositions where it's like users get money and then, uh, you know, we're, we're just putzing around and working on horizontal integrations to actually like boost margins as opposed to just like forcing users into a bad deal. Um, and uh, yeah, that's... That's the goal with multi-strategies. Uh, we'll see a lot of them over the next year uh, on our end. And pain.finance, we're just uh, keeping a deposit cap for now. We have three strategies we're hooked into, I believe, and uh, going to slowly be more. Um, and uh, just continuing to make things, building up, continuing to build abstractions on Reaper. So now instead of having four different uh, single-sided FTM strategies, you just throw your shit in the, uh, the multi-strategy and you never have to think about it again. Um, and then all this UX infrastructure, we can build on top of it. And Reliquary uh, is going to be powered by these multi-strategies or maybe vice versa. Um, so all of the all of the deposits in Reliquary are going to be earning uh, real revenue and, and real yield that way um, to offset emissions and uh, just trying to slowly get these flywheels turning so we can uh, become a you know multi-billion dollar business uh, like we plan but um next six months just a lot of really exciting stuff on the way that's awesome man let's go that's awesome yeah i mean the erc 4626 thing i actually think will be super important um for for standardizing you know yield bearing vaults and i know that's been it was a big push for urine so that's awesome you guys are doing that there, there was a question uh from john steps and I asked you the same question, actually, uh, and I don't know if you'll be able to, if you want to answer it, but I asked you on Discord, um, you know, I, 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 my assumption was that because of the urine fees and, and all the stuff you just spoke about that boosted pools from Beethoven, um, the, the actual yield on the boosted pools is getting no love because probably most of the, 
you know, the APR that would be passed on to those pools is being sucked out by fees, you know, from urine. And I don't know if that's true, but that's my assumption. Um, yeah. So what you guys are doing, is this something that's going to, you know, is there a use case there? Like, is this a, a, you know, a potential way to- Totally, to totally. Like with the urine pools, you need to still emit tokens to subsidize them, which is like ridiculous. And um, it's kind of like how urine has grown. It's like, they are integrating with these teams and then they have a, a revenue share structure where if you have a billion TVL, you, you can, well, you can earn anywhere from like five to 50% of all the fees that Vault generates. Um, and I think it's just the performance fees. Uh, so it's like people are driving liquidity to yearn with their token emissions, essentially paying for uh, yearn revenue. Um, whereas with ours, the fees are going to be lower. We're not going to be taking a management fee. Uh, it's just going to be purely performance-based. Um, at least that's the idea uh, right now. So we we go into boosted pools. Beethoven doesn't really need to emit anything. Um, and, and we'll still be more competitive than the ones they're emitting for because our vaults are going to scale really well. They're going to deliver a lot of yield. It's just the problem there. It's, it's a different value prop. So where urine is going to be feeding a lot of money to Beethoven, um, we need to get a little more creative with how we're going to make it worthwhile for them. But for the user, like our entire ethos is like, okay, you know, think of us. I mean, you know, I don't want to, for legal reasons, equate us, but maybe in Minecraft, uh, Byte Masons would be sort of like a credit union where like, you know, we serve the community and we focus on lowering fees, having better rates, having better LTV ratios. So like, our goal is to build a community that demands um, that our products be utilized. And then all of that value uh, would be passed on to them because I think that's the whole point of DeFi. It's like, as a user, I'm like, dude, I, I want the yield. I want the value. Um, you know, I want all of these partners and teams to succeed. But I think if we focus on serving users, then success is like an easy side effect of that. And, um, you know, is it a, a race to the bottom? Are, Fee-wise, um, I don't think so uh, because, like, uh, it is expensive to operate these things, um, and security is really expensive. And I think, to a certain extent, like, no matter what, you need to uh, pay for security, and and you need to be able to pay developers because, you know, think about some of our competitors on Phantom, um, you know if you don't have enough money to actually uh, sustain yourself, then it becomes an eventuality that you make a mistake um, because you can't take your time in that case and you can't be extra careful and you can't be risk averse. Um, yeah. So higher fees kind of offset the need to have a broader risk profile um, to a certain extent, because it's like, okay, we're making more fees off of these, you know, narrower risk profiles. Um, so now we don't need to worry about putting our users funds at risks to survive as a business. Um, so I, you know, some people might think it's a race to the bottom. I think it's a race to the middle. <laughs> it's, it, it, you know, I think we haven't found, um, like what works yet. And, and maybe we get going with like, you know, lower fees and we find out, oh shit, urine is right. We need to, we need to uh, take fees like a hedge fund. Um, I don't necessarily think that's true. I think uh, our efforts in Reaper have proven um, that's not necessarily true. 
I think you look at urine's revenue and the amount of money they have and make. And I think that tells you like, you know, um, there's a lot of there is, there is, there is a, a ton there and, um, you know, we're not too greedy. So, uh, it's really just like a way for us to drive usership and liquidity to our horizontally integrated software. And then that is where we can in, increase our margins. Um, and that's, that's the goal. It's like, we are going wide, um, so that we don't need to charge you out the ass for this one little, uh, narrow use case, and we can still deliver, uh, an equivalent service. Um, and, and we think, you know, DeFi systems are small enough and, and I don't want to say they're easy to maintain, but once you know everything you need to know, like, you know, once you are, are a senior in this space, they're pretty easy to maintain uh, and secure. Um, there's like a playbook, you know, uh, and um, horizontal integration, we think, is is the way to do it. Because as maintenance costs go down for this, you can move on to this next thing where you can plug into and and increase the revenue of this and uh, benefit from from revenue here. And Reaper and Granary are the obvious examples. Um, and, and you'll all see a lot more um, in that vein as we... Uh, get moving and um you know it all it'll, right. it'll it'll be cool i think um i have a lot to say about multi-strategies but i think that's about <laughs> about it <laughs> uh ditch it you, you're gonna find out what oath is all about uh based on everything beavis just described or, or go back to previous episodes i think we've had at least one oath conversation on every single one so um moving on to the final topic so curious as to you guys' thoughts here so um so you know, it, I guess the question is, as we go on to it, is, is this the, the squeaky wheel gets the grease or is this, uh, you know, that that, you know, one I, one one group I see continually you know putting out things yeah. in this bear market is, yeah. is Deus. And so, um, you know, is building, you know, Deus is still building. So is all it takes one success. So uh, 24, I'm going to go to you first. But before I do, I just wanted to kind of plug yeah. what the latest thing is. So. Deus is building a peer-to-peer derivatives platform called DeFiX. DeFiX is an OTC derivatives clearinghouse that leverages smart contract blockchains and Muon, which I believe to be uh, price feeds, to enable traders, third-party exchanges, and market makers to interact with each other directly without any, any intermediaries. Uh, and by the way, the derivatives market, just as a whole in general, is, a, is one quadrillion dollars um, so larger, larger than anything we've ever seen in the DeFi space. Uh, so my question is, is all it taking, you know, given the track record, the history, all the crap we've seen thus far, is all it takes one thing on Phantom to blow up to be really successful? Yes. And I'll let you go first. They are positioned. I think that obviously I'm not invested in them. But if you think about recent narratives on Phantom that have been successful, yep. you have to mention Deus. Um, since, so I guess, February march they've kind of been at the forefront of phantom in terms of just people talking about deus um and that's something i look towards like first of all it takes one success to kind of you know get back into it but i look at the communities like i go into deus discord they're talking i go to reaper farm they're talking sometimes people don't like that justin just mentioned like users you know telling them what to do you know being backseat drivers but that's that's kind of a good thing because hear me out 
there's some discords or uh, projects where there's nobody talking. Nothing's happening. <laughs> yeah. They're not yeah, saying anything. So <laughs> there's people watching what's going on at, at Reaper Farm, what's going on at Deus. Um, there's people that are already on the side who made some money with their products. Um, there's been some things where I felt like they've dropped the ball in terms of, you know, trust and, 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 and things like they could have done better, but they got the light on them. They can just release something. Sometimes in DeFi, the product doesn't even have to be good. They can just release <laughs> something and boom, there comes back the tension and stuff. I saw that with Popsicle Finance. Uh, that, sh that governance token just soared and soared and soared. Meanwhile, like some of me and my friends were on ETH using their optimizer and we were losing money every time it rebased. Like we were losing money to permanent loss. Nobody knew that. Nobody cared. They're like, they or sorry, uh, ice, ice to the moon. So it doesn't even matter what they build, to be honest. They got attention. They just launched something and people are always yeah. going to try and make money, you know? So I, I, I go to the solidly example. I mean, if you think about the amount of liquidity that came to Phantom when Solidly launched, what was it, $2 billion? And it, was, it was a massive, like, it was like th a third of the whole total TVL up to that point on Phantom. Um, obviously, we all know how that ended. Um, but nevertheless, the, the narrative was there and it drove a lot of attention, adoption, and price action for Phantom. It, it was a good thing for a small window. Um, and so, with that said, the die, you know, die date, uh, the, the day DPEG. Um, and, and, you know, I think there was a hack. There's been a whole handful of a litany of issues along the way. Um, but I have to give them credit that they continue to put out, you know, lots of marketing. And I don't know if it's purely marketing, but they put out a lot of things uh, on Phantom and specific to Phantom to, to continue to drive attention. And I don't see a lot of protocols doing that right now. So I have to give them credit there. With that said, Nick, are you buying or are you selling? And I don't mean literally, but like as far as the rumor of the news uh, are you buying or selling that one success with Deus can bring them back uh, and this new product with DeFiX? I'm doing neither just because I'm not buying much of anything based on my previous comments earlier. But, um, you know, it's really easy to walk away from, from these situations. And Lafayette doesn't do that. The guy's a fighter. Um, he lives for this stuff. And, you know, he'll be the first one to tell you that they dropped the ball and they've had their issues, whether it's the hacks or the the, the day uh, peg situation. But he's all about this life and he's just going to keep plugging away um, until un until he fixes all of this. And I don't know how long it's going to take, um, but I know he's going to keep trying. And I also know that he's got two separate teams, one working, well, he's got multiple teams, but he's got one team taking care of the day repeg situation and concurrently, another team that's been working on what they call, you know, Deus V3, which is this derivatives platform. Um, so it's certainly bullish. It's certainly interesting. I think one helps the other. And it's no surprise that they're, you know, trying to push this thing out and get it live. Um, and it's really new. Like, it, it's it's kind of revolutionary stuff. There's a lot of counterparties. He needs brokers on the back end to, to you know, to to settle these trades. There's a lot of moving parts. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, I can't wait to see it. And, um, you know, the one thing I do know is the guy's going to keep trying. Um, and as information comes in, I'll be a buyer. Um, but, you know, there's no need to rush into these things. Um, you know, buying off an announcement or a Medium article, you know, 
wait and have a look. See see what's released, see what it looks like. Um, and I'm sure that it's not going to be perfect on day one. That would be silly to think that. So, yeah, don't rush. Um, but to, to 24's point, it's exciting. You know, having a P2P derivatives platform where you can trade any asset in a permissionless way, that's cool. I'd use it. Um, so it's definitely something to be positive about. And, and you know, I'm in their, I'm in their uh, uh, Discord all the time. Always activity. Always. For, for, for better or for worse, uh, people are excited and interested about what's going on there. So, like I said before, I wish them the best of luck, and and you know, I'm um, I'm watching it very carefully. I hope they pull it off. It'll be really awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I see a lot of I think systemic challenges given the events that have happened over the last six months. When you're you're trying to get you know TradFi you know derivative buyers to interact with a, a platform on chain, like I, I just think there's there's probably a lot of headwinds that have been created to to make this be successful. Um, but you know, I guess we'll wait and see how it how it turns out. Uh, Beavis, last last question. I'm going to kick it over to you, buddy. Um, you know, given the complexities of what they're trying to do, this is not a traditional DeFi platform. This is merging the tradfi world of, of derivatives into you know, the DeFi space. It's never been done. You know, from from a smart contract perspective, from from a risk perspective. I mean, how like how how worried would you be? How, how long would this keep you up at night if you were trying to pull this off? Uh, given the complexities, uh, I just wouldn't do it. Uh, but um, <laughs> like you know, the complexities, like legal complexities, architectural complexities, you know, uh, it's they're kind of like going up a mountain. Um, and much respect. Uh, I think like my like dream five years from now is to you know vertically integrate our way into our, you know, native oracles. Um, but that's like, I think Muon has a lot of, you know, time it needs in the oven uh, before something like that can like be fully fledged. Um, and I think beyond that, DeFi uh, needs a lot of time in the oven before DeFi users are even ready uh, for, you know, derivatives markets. Um, I think, you know, adoption is very low. Like DYDX is probably um, the biggest player. And they also like absorb all of the institutional demand uh, for, for derivatives. And um, probably like, you know, I wish them luck uh and you know looking at their track record there's a lot of lessons that they potentially could have learned from uh to execute really well on this um so as and i'm sure they have like they seem like a smart team um so i think uh i wouldn't uh kind of pursue you know, a two, three, four years down the line market that aggressively right now. Um, but it gives them a good use case for Muon, I think, um, and gives them an excuse to invest money into it. And uh, it could be really profitable and, and fun for users. So um, 
I think, uh, you know, it sets off alarms in, in terms of like all of the risks involved, but I'm sure if they've been building it for a while that um, they've got uh, a handle on that. So um, yeah. uh, I'm excited would, to see would... what they come out with. At the very least, I'm excited for Solidly Plus. Um, I, I think, you know, they at the very least are willing to put their money where their mouth is, uh, which yeah. is uh, cool and um uh yeah good for them exciting yeah, yeah. i mean for me i'm I, i'm just like take it slow man like let uh, after after some of the things that we've seen just just take it slow build slowly make it make it right the first time um and and hopefully it works out i, I agree rich we, we we could certainly use a catalyst on phantom um like a solid lead but a very successful one and i think that would be really fantastic so uh, guys, thank you so much. If you if you tuned in today, thank you as well. Uh, it's awesome to be here. Do us a favor, like and subscribe to the channel. Uh, help get the video out there. 82 of you I see on here. I think there's like 50 likes. Hit the like button. Uh, from all of us at FTM Alerts in episode 44 of Phantom Unchained, we will see you later. Have an awesome Thursday and a great weekend. Peace out. Hit the like. Subscribe. <laughs>